Due to the sensitive nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On the morning of November 8, 2018, California fireman Matt McKenzie woke up to the sound of pine needles banging against the roof of his station. The swirling debris was the byproduct of powerful winds sweeping through the dry region. At about 6.30 a.m., officials from the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or PG&E, reported a brush fire near Poe Dam. As soon as he got the call, McKenzie rushed to the scene. He and a team of first responders tried to tamp down the fire, but strong winds fueled the flames. As the blaze spiraled out of control, Authorities in Butte County issued evacuation orders. The local sheriff told residents to dial 911 if they needed assistance, but the emergency lines were overwhelmed with callers. Those who could hopped in their cars and tried to flee the burning town before the fire overcame them. But with everyone trying to leave at the same time, the roads were jammed. Drivers had no choice but to abandon their vehicles and run for their lives. Firefighters and rescue crews were left to push empty cars out of the way so they could make it to the heart of the fire. It was an apocalyptic scene that would ultimately take lives, destroy homes, and burn an entire town to the ground. When the dust settled, it would prove to be the deadliest fire in California history. And all eyes would turn to the company that reported the fire in the first place. PG and E. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And this is They Knew, a four part special series presented by Conspiracy Theories. When a tragedy occurs, we often find ourselves asking, how could this happen? Oftentimes, the events were totally random. There's no way anyone could have foreseen what would happen. But other disasters are the result of negligence and corruption. This is the final episode in our four-part special. In this episode, we'll analyze the Pacific Gas and Electric Company and its ongoing role in causing California's devastating wildfires. To date... PG&E's equipment has been found responsible for the burning of over one million acres. The company's destruction has a clear paper trail and government acknowledgement, but the private company is still allowed to be the country's largest utility provider. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. If you live in northern or central California, you likely pay your power bill to PG&E. It's a historic company that's been keeping lights on across California for well over a century. By the 1930s, PG&E had gobbled up enough smaller companies to become a monopoly. And despite the fact that monopolies are generally illegal in the U.S., the government has frequently made exceptions for public utility corporations. It's too costly for a new competitor to build a power grid from the bottom up. So the state has entrusted PG&E to be the sole provider of electricity for major regions throughout California. But unlike a standard monopoly, PG&E can't simply jack up its prices. It's at the mercy of the California Public Utilities Commission, or CPUC, which regulates the rates charged to customers. Despite lacking competition, PG&E provided reliable electric and natural gas service for the first half of the 20th century. But as the company grew, so did its track record for causing disasters. In 1997, PG&E was fined $2 million and convicted of more than 700 misdemeanors, largely for failing to trim trees that were brushing against the company's power lines. Even just a spark from one of the high-voltage cables could set plants ablaze and grow into an expansive wildfire. Unfortunately, the company's problems only compounded in the years ahead. PG&E struggled to upkeep the equipment in its 70,000-square-mile service area. For context, that's larger than the entire state of Florida. Because PG&E had a significant amount of customers throughout various regions, it relied on complex infrastructure to circulate natural gas. When gas is transported through a pipeline, it needs to be occasionally pressurized in order to continue flowing onward. This process takes place in compressor stations and cooling towers, like the ones PG&E had near Hinkley in Southern California. And in order to keep much of this machinery from rusting, the company relied on a toxic substance called chromium-6. According to the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Administration, exposure to chromium-6 can cause a number of health issues, including respiratory cancer, eye damage, and skin irritation. From 1952 to 1966, PG&E dumped 370 million gallons of poisonous wastewater from its cooling tower into ponds around Hinkley. And if you've seen the movie Aaron Brockovich, you might know what comes next. The hazardous material seeped into the city's soil and contaminated water wells. But PG&E didn't tell the local water board until 1987, long after the carcinogenic wastewater had been discarded into the community. In the next few years, the residents of Hinkley sued PG&E and won. The company was ordered to pay $333 million, the largest settlement ever paid in a direct action lawsuit at the time. 
Despite the hefty payout, PG&E remained one of the largest utility companies in the United States. If anything, the settlement may have caused executives to worry more about the corporation's bottom line. In the decades since the Hinckley disaster, PG&E has earned a reputation for cutting corners. Its outdated equipment has led to deadly gas pipeline explosions and wildfires throughout California. Yet to many people, it seemed like the company calculated that it was cheaper to pay fines than upgrade its infrastructure. Rather than learning from its mistakes, PG&E's failures have only grown more catastrophic in recent years. In 2009, a California state inspector warned PG&E about safety problems in its gas distribution system. The company was apparently failing to comply with federal laws regulating pipelines, which left the public in danger. Yet it seems the corporation decided not to heed the warning, which it managed to get away with, in part because the CPUC trusted PG&E to develop their own, quote, culture of safety. The state's approach meant that there was little incentive for PG&E to fix its problems. That is, until a disaster occurred. September 9th, 2010, was a quiet, albeit windy night in San Bruno, a Bay Area suburb. On that night, one of PG&E's underground gas pipes exploded. The blast triggered what felt like a small earthquake and set off a fireball more than 1,000 feet into the air. Eight people were killed, 58 were injured, and 38 homes were destroyed. Dozens more were damaged. Survivors found their community ravaged with a crater the size of an intersection. Obviously, everyone had one burning question. Who was to blame? A subsequent investigation by the Federal National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, found PG&E to be at fault for the tragedy. According to the NTSB's report, the gas pipeline that exploded was installed in 1956. It didn't even meet the safety standards then, much less modern-day regulations. Armed with those findings, the government sued PG&E. A federal court ultimately convicted the public utility company on six felony counts, including violating pipeline safety standards and obstructing justice during the investigation. The corporation was punished with a $3 million fine, a five-year probation period, independent safety monitoring, and 10,000 hours of community service. And after the San Bruno explosion, PG&E initially appeared to treat the disaster as a wake-up call to upgrade its infrastructure. Although the company kept records of its power lines, some of them hadn't been updated in the last 40 years. In many cases, the corporation's database lacked specifics about its machinery, like the make and age of switches, circuit breakers, and voltage regulators. This meant they were missing crucial information to assess the system's safety risks. In an effort to resolve the issue, PG&E commissioned an audit of infrastructure by consulting firm Quanta Technology. Despite Quanta's best efforts, they couldn't identify the age of nearly 7,000 towers in PG&E's 115 kilovolt system. 
it found more than 3,000 transmission lines that were over 100 years old. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, most power lines should only have a life expectancy of 50 years before being replaced. Under normal circumstances, utility companies would typically dispatch laser imaging equipment to analyze towers rather than sending up one of its workers to inspect the structure. But granted that so many of the PG&E towers were incredibly old, Quanta recommended that the corporation have its personnel manually assess some of its towers every three to five years. It was reasonable advice intended to protect PG&E and its customers from future disasters. But the company dismissed the suggestion. The former head of strategic asset management, Placido J. Martinez, later told the Wall Street Journal that PG&E felt they were already, quote, doing enough. But it wasn't. Another audit, this time in-house, revealed that during the same year as the San Bruno explosion and continuing for years to come, the company's workers lied about inspecting sites around its electricity cables and gas pipelines. So despite having committed felonies that led to the San Bruno disaster, PG&E didn't seem interested in changing its ways. The company could have used its profits to address aging infrastructure. Instead, an investigation by the CPUC found that they diverted over $100 million collected from customers for safety operations and used part of it on executive compensation and bonuses. Meanwhile, pipelines and power routes grew even more rundown, which was especially problematic because in the years after the San Bruno explosion, California fell into a historic drought. Droughts are nothing new to California, but climate change has supercharged their effects. And in 2013, the state's lands dried out significantly more than in prior decades. The barren land was susceptible to wildfires, like dry kindling waiting to be lit. All it needed was a spark from PG&E's 125,000 miles of electric line. Coming up, PG&E's failures caused the deadliest fire in California's history. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. As California experienced an unprecedented drought in 2013, PG&E's power lines became a grave safety concern. If one of its high-voltage lines were to peel off, the dry surroundings beneath it could easily catch on fire. PG&E was aware of these dangers. That same year, it promised to replace many of its towers, including ones along the 92-year-old Caribou-Palermo transmission route in Northern California. At the time, PG&E told the state that the line dipped too close to the ground and surrounding vegetation. But the company pushed the project to 2014 and continued to delay it year after year. If the San Bruno explosion had been a wake-up call, PG&E simply hit snooze. The public utility seemed less concerned with spending money on improvements and more interested in bolstering the bottom line. Around the same time, there was also tension brewing internally. A number of mid-level managers complained to PG&E executives about an overzealous program director. According to their testimony, workers had been pressured to submit on-time inspection results even if the duties hadn't actually been performed yet. Instead of addressing the root of the problem, that this director was essentially causing employees to forge clean inspections, PG&E simply dismissed the mid-level managers who complained. In fact, the program director was promoted. According to a state investigative report, the company now knew at least some of its compliance data had likely been falsified, but it submitted the figures to regulators anyway. When the Wall Street Journal asked PG&E for comment, they said they don't comment on personnel matters. PG&E also failed to promptly notify the government about using unqualified contractors who ran improper gas safety inspections. When the government eventually found out, it levied a $5.4 million fine against the company, The Wall Street Journal also asked about this and other fines and received little comment beyond saying they were a part of the public record. And the penalties didn't seem to make much of an impact in their behavior. Perhaps relatively small multi-million dollar punishments weren't enough of a deterrent for a multi-billion dollar corporation. Some investigators have suggested that the investor-owned utility was focused on reporting high revenue to shareholders, prioritizing its stock price over its customers. Whatever their reasoning, PG&E did not make the necessary investments to retrofit its power and gas lines. But just when it felt like the company had swept the memory of San Bruno under the rug, California regulators finally issued their punishment for the disaster. In April 2015, the California Public Utilities Commission voted unanimously to fine PG&E $1.6 billion for over 2,000 violations of federal and state safety laws. It was the largest penalty ever levied against a utility company in California at the time. 
The government also forced the public utility to return $635 million that it had billed customers for pipeline upgrades that were botched or never made at all. That kind of record-breaking punishment might have been enough of a penalty to force another company to get its act together, but not for PG&E. Because the reality is, even if they wanted to upgrade all their systems, they were years behind. In a three-year period ending in 2017, PG&E reported about 1,550 fires caused by its equipment, and victims of those disasters peppered the company with additional lawsuits. To show it was trying to do better, PG&E presented regulators with plans to upgrade its transmission lines. But rather than make good on those retrofits, the projects were delayed, including the $30.3 million upgrade scheduled for the Caribou-Palermo transmission route. By 2017, as California's drought raged on, an internal presentation at PG&E showed that much of its dodgy infrastructure remained in place. By its own admission, PG&E's transmission towers were, on average, at least three years past their life expectancy. And these delays would all come to a head the next fall. November 8, 2018, found strong winds gusting through Northern California, especially Butte County, about an hour and a half north of Sacramento. The winds were so intense that the National Weather Service had escalated their fire weather watch to a red flag warning, the highest alert during fire conditions. At about 6.15 a.m., 52-mile-per-hour winds caused one of PG&E's live power transmission lines along the Caribou-Palermo route to fall off its tower. Not only did this cause a power outage in the area, but the live power line sparked a fire once it fell onto the dry brush, and the winds fanned the flames. A PG&E field crew worker noticed the brush fire and alerted his colleagues at the nearby Rock Creek powerhouse. By 6.33 a.m., PG&E personnel had notified authorities about the blaze. They called it the Camp Fire because of its proximity to Camp Creek Road. Fifteen minutes later, Captain Matt McKenzie was the first firefighter on the scene. Right away, he recognized the possibility of a disaster. The blaze had already scorched 10 acres and was poised to expand. McKenzie radioed in to his colleagues, quote, This has got potential for a major incident. He requested a bevy of firefighters, engines, water tenders, and bulldozers. But they couldn't get to the fire right away because of its location and the intense weather. The unpaved road that led to the fire was too precarious for fire engines to speed through. And helicopters couldn't fly in the fierce winds. Which meant that flying embers could simply keep fluttering and ignite additional fires on the flammable dry land. To protect residents in local communities, at 7.23 a.m., authorities issued evacuation orders. The Butte County Sheriff later tweeted for residents to call 911 if they needed any help leaving. But the dispatchers were completely unprepared for the onslaught of calls that came in. Among the 52,000 residents ordered to evacuate were 68-year-old Susan Orr and her 71-year-old husband, Gilbert. The couple was in the middle of breakfast when they saw the inferno through their window. 
They scooped up their dog, Duke, and ran to their Trans Am. The oars were among the lucky ones. Some of their neighbors weren't able to escape in time and perished just footsteps from their homes. Others found themselves almost reaching safety, only to encounter danger once on the road. At 8.07 a.m., a fallen tree blocked the main route out of Concow, one of the towns in the thick of the fire. This left a crew of first responders and 20 residents boxed in. Eight of them died in the relentless blaze. Elsewhere in the area, escape routes were jammed with tens of thousands of people, all trying to leave at once. As the fire closed in, residents ditched their cars and ran for their lives. Among them was 34-year-old Nicole Jolly. With each step, the rubber on the bottom of her shoes melted into the asphalt beneath her. At its peak, nearly 6,000 firefighters and dozens of aircraft were deployed to contain the blaze. And the inferno wasn't just a challenge for those on site. Its smoke drifted throughout the region, contaminating the air above Northern California. During the disaster, the nearby cities of San Francisco, Stockton, and Sacramento were the three most air-polluted cities in the world. As the campfire broke dubious records for the number of lives lost and homes burned, the tragedy garnered national attention. The federal government declared a public health emergency in California, and then-President Donald Trump visited the devastated town of Paradise. Others at the scene included Paradise Mayor Jody Jones, California Governor Jerry Brown, and Governor-elect Gavin Newsom. They surveyed the city's destruction inflicted by the 80-mile-per-hour fire. The leaders were surrounded by burnt-out cars and houses and trees reduced to charred branches. Despite the moment of eerie calm, the campfire still burned elsewhere in Northern California. More than a week after the disaster began, Firefighters still tried to contain the flames. Fortunately, on November 21st, almost two weeks after the fire began, the area experienced heavy rains. Relieved, firefighters managed to extinguish the blaze in the next few days. By November 25th, authorities announced that the campfire was finally 100% contained. The news of containment brought relief but Californians still had to confront the sheer horror of just how much damage had been done. The campfire officially claimed 86 lives, making it the deadliest wildfire in California history. Among the casualties was 96-year-old Ethel Colleen Riggs. Her grandson, Steve Bradley, was a former volunteer firefighter who drove from Sacramento in an attempt to rescue her. But he wasn't able to make it in time. Riggs's remains were found in her home's laundry room. Since then, Bradley has had sleepless nights thinking about the pain his grandmother experienced in her final moments. Sadly, the Chico Enterprise record found that doctors and other experts have already identified at least 50 more people with pre-existing health issues that died as a result of secondary exposure to the fire. Among survivors, there were at least a dozen civilians injured, as well as five first responders. In addition to the astounding death toll, the flames also destroyed some 15,000 homes and over 150,000 acres, as much land as the entire city of Chicago. 
that made the disaster not just the deadliest, but also the most destructive wildfire in California's history. The damages exceeded $16 billion. Coming up, how PG&E has continued to buy its way out of trouble. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now back to the story. PG&E's equipment caused a series of California wildfires, including the state's deadliest and most destructive fire ever. The company faced liability claims in excess of $30 billion. As a result, PG&E said it didn't have enough money to pay the 83,000 victims who suffered because of its failures. Left with little choice, in January 2019, PG&E filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. As part of the corporation's financial restructuring, it had to find entities to take on its debt. So PG&E issued $1.5 billion in stock to Wall Street hedge funds. The transaction, known as an equity backstop, required the hedge funds to remain invested in PG&E until the company exited bankruptcy. Short on cash, PG&E also utilized its stock to partially compensate victims in the form of shares. In December 2019, the corporation agreed to pay out $13.5 billion, half in cash and the other half in stock, awarded to a trust fund for the fire victims. That meant the final payout would largely hinge on the performance of PG&E's stock. If the company's share price were to decline, so would the value of the settlement. More on that in a moment. Although PG&E claimed it didn't have enough money to pay survivors what they were owed, the company did make all-cash payments, totaling $25 billion, to insurance companies and the California government. Those entities were paid in full, unlike the fire victims, who had lost everything. Settlements were just one part of the picture, though. In the eyes of the survivors, there was no amount of money that would exonerate PG&E from its crimes, and they wanted legal accountability. In the lawsuit against PG&E that followed the campfire, a grand jury found that the corporation demonstrated, quote, a callous disregard for life and property. Speaking before a judge, PG&E's then-CEO and president, Bill Johnson, admitted that his company's faulty equipment caused the campfire. On June 16, 2020, PG&E went to court for 84 separate counts of involuntary manslaughter and one felony count of unlawfully starting a fire. The case marked the first time that any major utility was charged with homicide as a result of a reckless fire. 
There were so many charges to answer to, the proceedings took 28 minutes for the judge to recite the charges and the defendant to respond. The company pleaded guilty to all the charges and took the rare step of waiving its right to appeal. Despite being charged with crimes punishable by a 90-year prison sentence if they were committed by an individual, PG&E hasn't had a single employee yet sent to jail for these crimes. In many corporate scandals of years past, there were individuals whose actions could be identified as criminal. But in PG&E's case, investigations to date haven't found specific employees that caused the fire to happen. The only legal means of punishing an entire company is through fines, dissolution, and probation. That's why, in the case of the campfire lawsuit, the judge's options were limited. The maximum penalty that he could impose on PG&E was a $4 million fine and federal probation. Under those terms, the public utility was subject to the supervision of a third-party monitor appointed by the court. The verdict was bittersweet for fire victims. PG&E had been indicted for its criminal behavior, but that didn't change the fact that its negligence had wiped out entire communities like Paradise, California. All fire victims could do was root for PG&E's success, so the shares they owned increased in value. In what seemed like good news, one month after the campfire conviction, PG&E exited bankruptcy. But that didn't end up being a positive development for survivors. Instead, Wall Street hedge funds grossed at least $2 billion from dumping their PG&E stock, while fire victims were left holding the bag. The sell-off further depressed the value of PG&E shares, which the survivor settlement was tethered to. They had been promised $6.75 billion worth of stock, but now, survivors' shares were only worth about $4.5 billion, about 33% less than they were owed. The hedge fund's exits also meant that PG&E had more debt. Although the company claimed to have a promising financial plan, it was now $38 billion in the red. That was over $15 billion more than the amount of losses it had upon entering bankruptcy. In light of the campfire, PG&E's equipment is suspected of causing even more disasters in California, like the 2020 Zog Fire and the 2021 Dixie Fire. The former killed four people and burned over 56,000 acres, an area larger than the city of Seattle. The latter killed a first responder and burned almost one million acres, making it the second largest wildfire in California history. A January 2022 report by Cal Fire concluded that this was the result of a tree striking PG&E power lines. These were especially unwelcome developments for the campfire survivors. As of this recording, the value of fire victim stock has yet to achieve the $6.75 billion that PG&E had committed to. Realistically, the survivors are only expected to receive up to 60% of what they're owed after paying a capital gains tax on a percentage of the earnings. In July 2021, they heard as much from John Trotter, court-appointed trustee of the Fire Victim Trust. He told KQED that the victims will, quote, never be made whole. Even in 2022, 
Many Californians are left wondering how PG&E is still authorized to provide them with power. In the eyes of the federal government, PG&E is a twice-convicted felon responsible for hundreds of California's wildfires, including the most destructive one in state history. It's one of the few U.S. corporations ever to be charged with homicide. Yet, state regulators continue to trust it to provide power to 16 million residents, making it one of the largest utility companies in America. As with every story we've covered in this series, the damage exposes the influence of money and power, and how it's impossible to untangle them when there's so much at stake. They seem to be the main reasons why authorities haven't been tougher on the company for its catastrophic failures. A look into PG&E's political spending shows that the company spent an inordinate amount of cash to curry favor with California's government. The corporation has a long history of commissioning lobbyists and donating to political campaigns of both Democrats and Republicans. For example, the public utility has financially supported California Governor Gavin Newsom ever since his first run for San Francisco supervisor in 1998. When ABC 10 in Sacramento asked Governor Newsom in 2019 if it was okay for him to be accepting donations from a convicted felon, he had little response outside of, quote, it's a strange question. For their part, PG&E replied at the time, like many individuals and businesses, PG&E participates in the political process. In recent years, PG&E doubled down on its contributions to political entities that could offer favorable treatment. In 2018, the same year the campfire occurred, PG&E spent $10 million on lobbying efforts. The New York Times notes that was about two times more than another investor-owned utility, Southern California Edison, which services a comparable amount of customers. That $10 million worth of contributions included a sizable $1.1 million payment to SCRB Strategies, a political consultancy that helped run campaigns for high-profile California politicians, including Governor Newsom. Some have suggested that the company's contributions may have motivated the governor's office to draft and sign a law that allowed PG&E to avoid paying out-of-pocket for its damages. Under AB 1054, the public utility was allowed to dip into the state's $21 billion taxpayer-funded insurance account after it caused the campfire. Critics of the measure have said it gives PG&E a, quote, License to burn. The governor has also drawn backlash for accusations of micromanaging the California Public Utilities Commission, the regulatory agency that oversees PG&E. Newsom's influence could explain why the organization waived a $200 million fine in order to help PG&E exit bankruptcy. The speculation is fueled by the fact that the CPUC has refused to release its communications with the governor's office about the bailout. PG&E has also made sizable contributions to an organization run by someone very close to Newsom, his wife, Jennifer. Between 2016 and 2018, PG&E donated nearly $300,000 to her nonprofit, The Representation Project, 
While there are no state laws specifically regulating charities run by spouses of government officials, the donations have generated headlines highlighting a potential conflict of interest. For his part, Newsom has denied being swayed by PG&E's donations. In a 2019 news conference, the governor said, quote, If the suggestion is somehow I'm influenced by that, you're wrong. And there's not one thing you can point to during my tenure as governor that would suggest otherwise. And with regard to his wife's nonprofit, Newsom didn't see any issue with the corporations donating to it. Reporters asked him if it's a conflict of interest for his wife's charity to accept contributions from businesses that lobby him as a governor. In response, Newsom said, quote, There's no correlation, period, full stop. Absolutely none. In fact, the work my wife does is inspiring. While PG&E has written hefty checks to the governor's campaigns and his wife's nonprofit, it still had money left over for plenty of other public officials. In 2020 alone, the corporation donated over $2.1 million to California politicians on both sides of the aisle. These are the same lawmakers who are theoretically supposed to regulate the company. A third of those contributions were made while the corporation was still enjoying bankruptcy protection. For those who had lost loved ones to PG&E's fires, they felt their policymakers were accepting, quote, blood money. Politicians, however, continue to welcome PG&E's cash. Among them is the former mayor of San Francisco and Speaker of the California Assembly, Willie Brown. The public utility has paid him for consulting services, a role which included delivering messages to Governor Newsom. When interviewed by the New York Times about his work for PG&E, Brown said, quote, I hope that they call me because every call generates an invoice. The millions of dollars that PG&E gave to political officials could have been spent on trimming trees, like the one the company neglected to cut before it fell on a PG&E power line in Shasta County, which is precisely what sparked the Zog fire of 2020. But in PG&E's eyes, the company's contributions seem to be money well spent. As of this recording, the corporation's probationary period ended on January 25, 2022, and the Justice Department opted not to extend the term. Having already explored probation and fines, the state's only other means of punishing the corporation would be through dissolution. That could entail a number of measures, including breaking up PG&E's natural gas and electric divisions, restructuring the company into regional subsidiaries, or turning the private corporation into a state-run entity. Although regulators reportedly considered those possibilities after the campfire, it seems improbable that the government would fall through on any of those options. The fact is, restructuring PG&E through a takeover would be a multi-year, multi-billion dollar endeavor largely funded by taxpayers. The move would disproportionately affect Southern Californians who would be paying higher bills even though PG&E doesn't operate in their region. So the public utility continues to enjoy its monopoly in large swaths of California. Residents can only hope that PG&E learns from its past with Patty Poppian as the new CEO, the fifth leader in less than three years, it's still unclear if she can turn the ship around. 
In a hopeful sign of things to come, Poppy has said that the company will spend up to $30 billion to bury power lines over the next few years. But the Dixie Fire, the second largest fire by acreage in the state's history, also occurred on her watch as CEO, which might be all the more proof that it takes a worst-case scenario to spur change at the company. PG&E and the other culprits we've explored in this series may have caused havoc in different ways, but they all highlight the same problem. Money and power are the seeds of institutional negligence, and it can have devastating consequences for everyone else. But government and business leaders are often too consumed with maintaining authority and profits to acknowledge the damage they're capable of inflicting. From Love Canal in the 1970s to PG&E's ongoing failures, the people and organizations we trust have shown how easily their judgment can be corrupted. This situation isn't unique to American culture. It's just as likely to cause a disaster in Flint, Michigan, as it is in Fukushima, Japan. In the stories we've presented, when the corporate executives and politicians opted for personal gain over public safety, they knew what they were doing. And they chose to do it anyway. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode. For more information on PG&E, amongst the many sources we used, we found the reporting by The Wall Street Journal and ABC10 in Sacramento extremely helpful to our research. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Ben Hanani, with writing assistance by Mallory Cara and Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Brian Petrus. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.